So I went, I did the interview. I thought I did a very good job. I think I did do a very good job, but I was told, no, we're not going to go with you. And the reason was I didn't have the strategic understanding to back up, I suppose, the executional, the creative elements. And I suppose my theory or whatever you want to call it, my belief in the idea that skills aren't always as transferable as they seem probably comes back to this moment because I came in with a lot of confidence, kind of thinking I understood this world, thinking that I was going to be able to take what I had and seamlessly apply it across the board. And I couldn't. Aiden, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. What is one thing you know to be true that most people would probably disagree with you on? I mean, in one sense, there are so many of them, but there are so many kind of, you know, more trivial ones, like the fact that Roy Keane was 100% right in 2002 uh, to walk out in Saipan. Uh, I will, I am ready to die on that hill. I've been ready to die on that hill for 21 years. But in a more serious sense, and it's actually something that hopefully we're going to touch on over the course of this conversation, it is about the transferability of skills and abilities and knowledge through periods of fundamental technological change. I think there's a kind of a reassuring narrative um, that goes around. And again, I'll, I'll touch on this uh, hopefully more as we go through the conversation, which is, you know, if you have the core fundamental skills, whether that's storytelling, whether it's, you know, whatever it might be, you are going to be able to survive from one technological change to the next. So we saw it during the advent of digital. We saw it during the advent of, we're seeing it now during the advent of AI. Um, it applies not just in work, but in, in, in life in general. And I think it underplays the amount that we as humans need to be continuously adjusting, challenging ourselves, um, not in a kind of a glorious, glamorized way, but it kind of underplays how hard life can be sometimes. And whenever I say that, people are kind of like, no, 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 no. If you, you know, if you know how to write a headline for a newspaper, you know how to write good social copy. Partially true, partially very much not. And it's something that I've had interesting discussions with people with quite a bit uh, or about quite a bit. Um, but it is something that I just can't back down on because I think it's a fundamental truth. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. I think specifically now, a lot of people are, are probably asking themselves that question of like, how much of, of what I've learned all the year, all of the previous years in my career or whatever, are it, how much of that is actually relevant post the AI revolution. And I know that OpenAI and not just them, but like others in general have literally like published papers and, and just put out research or forecasts of like, these are the jobs that are going to be affected. And I think one of the papers that OpenAI specifically put out was like, all the jobs and then like the percentage of, of how affected they will be or something like that. And some of the, some of the occupations they wrote next to it, a hundred percent. So like a hundred percent, we're not going to need a specific, um, a specific role anymore. Uh, not now that there's AI and so on, but I think what, what people need to realize is that to your point, Aiden, like when you look at like the underlying skill set that, that was used once upon a time in that role and how you could apply that in a medley of different ways, I think that's where the opportunities start to arise. Absolutely. And I think the the disagreement pops in. And maybe, you know, maybe this isn't as widespread as I as I may think, but where the disagreement pops in is how much work needs to be done in order to transfer that from yeah. A to B. And I think yeah. it's kind of like how much work needed to be done on a carriage, you know, when the horse was being phased out in order to turn it into a car. 
we can't yeah. just say, oh, the automobile is here, therefore this carriage that used to be pulled by a horse is now just going to magically self-propel. No, we kind of understood that, you know, things and adjustments needed to be made in order for that to happen. And I think sometimes we can slip into what is the more comfortable narrative, which is, hey, look, I know how to communicate with people or I know how to, you know, get inside people's minds or I know how to ask the right questions or whatever. And they can all be enormously helpful. They're great platforms, but how they're executed is absolutely essential. Um, and if we don't do enough thinking on how that will change, we can find ourselves in a very comfortable but unrealistic position very quickly. Yeah, I mean, yeah, well said. Um, and it's funny because, like, I think from from what you have just been describing there, if people uh, don't already know you from before, it may be hard to tell exactly what it is that you do because I think what you've talked about is so so encompassing. So for folks who may, who may have not met you before, do you want to tell us a bit about what you're currently working on? And then from there, we can rewind the tape. Yeah, absolutely. So at the moment, I am a founder and principal of Far From Avocados, which to anyone who is aware of it, and I'm not sure how many there will be, will be familiar with us primarily as a content marketing agency. Um, we are still very much active in the content and marketing space. Our focus now is, uh, you know, almost kind of picking up from the point we just made on readying those in the creative space in particular, but organizations across the board for AI. And I, when I say AI, it's a term that has come to mean so many things to so many people that the term itself has almost become meaningless. Um, but when I say AI, I actually mean in a very sort of Basically, you know, like I, I'm not talking about like machine learning. I'm not talking about, I am talking about LLMs, but I'm not, you know, large language models. I'm not talking about this from a technical perspective. You know, on a day-to-day -day basis, what we're doing is we're working with people to find out how the, you know, people on their teams can be using tools like ChatGPT, like Midjourney, like Bard, like these ones that are accessible. They're no code. I don't have a technical background myself in order to enhance productivity, in order to enhance uh, operations, in order to enhance creativity, not just in terms of how they're doing things, but in terms of how they're even approaching things like thinking or brainstorming mm -hmm. or scheduling or client contact reports. And how, how big of a change is this from like what Far From Avocados used to do at, as, as a content marketing agency? Do you, do you feel like it's kind of like a natural progression or do you feel like this is like a total pivot, but a, but a necessary one perhaps? That's a very good question. There's there's two ways of answering it. One, in terms of our service offering, it's completely different. You know, we used to create content for organizations. We'd interview people. We'd extract the learnings from the interviews. We'd turn them into pieces of content. We would repurpose them. We'd distribute them. We'd build content strategies and, you know, all the things that you would expect when you hear a content marketing agency. That was what was on the website. And that is very much what we delivered. That was the, you know, but behind the scenes, how we operated was always, always, always on this basis of, efficiency and productivity and the ability to do more with less and that wasn't so that we could you know increase the volume of outputs it wasn't so that we could get better margins it was because where you know for a variety of reasons where the demand for more personalized content was becoming you know more and more in order to realistically fulfill the needs that a client would have for content or their customers would have for content, be they, you know, business or consumer, 
the need was to be able to, you know, get that out faster, get it out at kind of a greater speed. And like, I'll obviously, I, you know, you mentioned we were going to rewind, like, but my background prior to this had primarily been, been in publishing, you know, and I was working in publishing startups where we would be expected to get a similar output to the likes of the Irish Independent, the Irish Times, the, you know, the BuzzFeed, the, the, you know, with a team a fraction of the size. And how we did that was we were smart about how we did it. We, you know, long before the term repurposing had been popularized, we were kind of talking about it. And it was always about how can you make this machine as well-oiled as possible? Yeah, how to do more with less, basically, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And that wasn't, just, you know, like I said, that wasn't just for those kind of functional reasons. It was, It's also more enjoyable. You know, if you can get through a piece of content, get it to a standard that, you know, you're happy with, you believe in, that is good for the client, that's going to do the thing that they say it's going to do. If you can do that in half the time that you could otherwise take it, that's great for me as an employer. It's great for a client as a paying customer. And it's great for the person who's working on it because they get to, you know, move on to the next thing. They haven't worked twice as hard in that time. They haven't broken their back in order to do it. It reduces the pressure, increases the quality, reduces the scope for error. I, you know, to me, it was just kind of a win-win. And a lot of the time that was done through, you know, tools like whether it was Zapier, whether it was kind of well-defined workflows, which, you know, my background as a print journalist, we lived and died by. We created a newspaper in two and a half hours every single morning when I was with the Evening Herald here in Dublin. We had to have very good systems in order to do that. And that's the part that has really kind of carried through. When we were working with clients, we wouldn't just be advising them on, you know, what content they should be creating or publishing. But if they had an internal production team or an internal content team, we'd be working with them on setting up that, you know, in-house publication, uh, setting up those workflows, setting up those ways to get things done in a much better way. And I reiterate here, like, I'm not... I'm not a technical person. I'm not a, I'm not a consultant. I'm not big four trained. I'm not, I don't have a technical background, uh, you know, so I don't kind of come from either of those angles. I'm just looking at it from, you know, what's the path of least resistance to get the interesting message to sure. the people who need to hear it. And, yeah. uh, the, pa- the path of know. least resistance or like the, uh, almost like the job to be done. Like what is the, what is the end goal? A- and then from there, we can pretty much like dissect the means. Um, and I think this could be a good segue into because you're you're I think you're you're already starting to reflect on kind of some of your some of your earlier days, and I think it could be a good way to kind of look at the key moments. So let's jump in. Okay. What was one fa- What was one failure for you? Oh, okay. So when I was prepping for this, I went back and I opened an email from October 2012 that to this day I've never brought myself to be able to open since the time I first read it. It was a rejection email uh, from a social media agency in Dublin. Um, I think 11 years on, I can say it was Rothko Social Plus, as they were known back then. Mm-hmm. I had been working for the Irish Independent and the Evening Herald for five years. I was a production editor. I loved it, but I can I could see the changes that were coming in print. Um, they were, you know, digital was knocking on the door pretty hard. In one sense, it wasn't being heard. In another, it was dominating, you know, everything we did. And I was like, you know what? I need to maybe not be in this environment at the moment. I need to kind of maybe take a jump here. And I applied for this role, which was 
that I just looked at the email, uh, social media manager, let's say. And it very much was, to go back to my very first point, it very much was on this basis of, I can write a really, really good headline. And not just that, but I was, you know, I was the person who would take the words, take the pictures and turn them into a display. I'd turn them into, um, you know, I'd, I'd make sure that the headline wasn't just catchy, not just that it fit, but it told the story that we were trying to tell. My idea was always that if someone was leafing through a copy of the paper and they came to the feature section where I primarily worked, that they would stop on that page, which is so funny to me when I hear people talking about thumb stopping content now. It's like, oh yeah, no, I, I hear you. And I kind of understood back then that that was all these different elements. And I was like, a lot of this applies to social. So I went, I did the interview. I thought I did a very good job. I think I did do a very good job, but I was told, no, we're not going to go with you. Um, and the reason was I didn't have the strategic um, understanding to back up the, I suppose, the executional, the creative elements. And I suppose my theory or whatever you want to call it, my belief in the idea that skills aren't always as transferable as they seem probably comes back to this moment because I came in with a lot of confidence, kind of thinking I understood this world, thinking that I was going to be able to take what I had and seamlessly apply it across the board and I couldn't. So it's the, I choose it as the failure, not because of what it was. Now, I, I had in this very kind of manifesting slash lighting a fire under myself, I'd already handed in my notice at the Irish Independent. Um, now, I knew there was a good chance I wasn't going to get this job. I hadn't done it in, in arrogance or anything like that, but I had kind of gone like, no, it's time to move on. If I don't get... Like, this, no matter what, you were going to move on anyway kind of thing. Precisely, yeah. So it was <laughs> it was a bit of a shot to open, you know, because I had bills to pay, I had all the kind of things, and, and it was a sort of a, it was a land of a moment. But it did completely disabuse me of this notion that I could just embark on this new kind of, you know, that, that at whatever I was, uh, thir no, I, I've, I've lost my ability to do maths. I was thinking 26, 25, you know, that I'd completed work, that I'd stopped learning. I'd done a lot of great things in the Indo that I was really proud of. I still am. And I was doing very well for someone of my age, I think. Um, but... Well, well, let me let me ask you then. Like, why why do you why do you feel like it was uh, why do you, why do you feel it kind of had a particular? It seems like it impacted you more than you sort of realized. Yeah, and you know, up until today, up until I gave it serious thought, I probably thought it was because I didn't have anything else lined up, and now I really was facing into the void. But also, yeah, it's a scary feeling. Yeah, yeah, and you have to remember as well in 2012 the. There wasn't this idea that we've had over the last couple of years, which is kind of, you know, slipped away a little bit over the last year, but that, you know, if you don't get this job, there'll be another one around the corner. Like, we were still very much in that recession mindset. So there's all that functional side of it and stuff like that. But Yeah, which is funny because that's kind of what's happening right now with with the recession and with AI as well to, to, to stop it off. But yeah, carry on. Certainly, yeah. And, and, and in the tech world in particular, you know, we're kind of seeing it's like it's a combination of interest rates and venture funding and all these kind of, all these things are converging at the moment. I don't think it's anything psychologically or mentally like it was in 2011, 2012, where the only topic of conversation we had was the recession uh, for three years. So there was all that side. But really what it was was, this isn't going to be as easy as you thought, boy. You know, it was this kind of like, this is going to be a very, very difficult move. This is going to be a very difficult transition. Yeah. And what, what did you learn from the experience? 
I learned that I need to learn. Um, I learned that there was a lot more to doing something than what you saw. So that for all my, like I went in and I, I, you know, for this presentation, I created this, you know, that still stands up. I think I just looked at the presentation today because I went down this uh, psychological rabbit hole. Memory lane, yeah. And and like the content is good, you know, I'd I'd have a lot of notes on it, you know, uh, but it's good. It's it, it's fine. And I'd written all that. I'd done all that. I'd done what I kind of thought was the job. And then I realized, yeah. no, that's not the job. And it, that again feeds into this kind of, you know, there's so much more going on. Like I said, just there about avocados and how the work that we did in, you know, what we delivered was the tip of the iceberg. There was all this stuff that kind of went on underneath and it was, yeah. my realization there was, what is underneath the surface when it comes to that iceberg? It, it my my learning that I took away from it was this is a science. This is an intricate science with so many different moving parts that is going to be very very difficult to to learn to master. And I set about doing that, not necessarily in terms of reading books or in terms of you know there was that too, but in terms of kind of understanding what are the what are the levers? There's all these levers that we can move to perceive to to. Mm you know, uh, manage how someone perceives the content that we put out and what are all those levers? And that sent me down a road of thinking and analyzing that would see me through, you know, future publishing jobs, future digital jobs, and up until setting up Avocados in its original guise, right through to what it is we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what a story. I think it's, it's interesting because going back to that point where to, to, to recap something you talked about, like almost like this feeling of like, the scary feeling of like staring into the void and mm. not necessarily knowing where to go from here. I think this is definitely something that resonated with me because it's it's a feeling that I've had many times in the past before and I can tell you about it. But even right now, like I imagine a lot of people, um, you know, kind of kind of have it. I mean, I think we even had it at Chopcast, to be honest, um, you know, yep. with, with the AI explosion, like there's just there's this sense of like, um, not not like uh, decision paralysis, but I think it's uh, kind of like the par- yeah paradox of choice. That's the word I was looking for. Where it's like, Very wait good. a minute, holy shit! There's so many ways that this could sort of evolve. There's so many permutations and combinations for yeah, you know, and and which one should we go for? And I think the thought that kind of always calms us at least at least a little bit is that hey, like there's nobody who has any more insight than anybody else. Like we're all kind of going through this together. The best thing is for you to just make a decision i think there's a uh, there's a saying that says making a decision is almost better than choosing the the, the right so making a decision matters more than making the right decision 100 percent, 100 percent. and like you know we'll we'll speak about that when we talk about you know decisions um in a while but it's also this concept you know this this quote that and look we're bombarded with quotes and motivational things that we're expected to find meaning from every single day. But last week I had this, or a couple of weeks ago, I had this unusual moment where I read one that jumped out at me and I was like, and the quote was, focus is what you don't do. And I was like, oh yeah, that's that's it. And especially at the moment when there's so many avenues to choose from and so many, uh, it's so, you know, it's so hard for us to analyze. We can see the next step and, you know, if we have 50 avenues ahead of us, we can see the next step in all of them, but we can't see five steps down the road in all of them because that the the total number of permutations then is just too much for us to compute. Sure. Nor nor do you necessarily need to see five steps ahead because by the time you you study that it, it's you know the way like people say 
like doing a one-year plan or like a two-year plan is, is it's almost hypothetical because by the time you're like three months and you're like, wait a minute, let's just scratch everything else because we've learned so much. So I think it, it, it's in the same vein as that as such. Um, and I know we're, um, yeah, I, I know we're going to talk about decisions, but before that, I wanted to ask you though, I think this is a good segue. What was one book for you that even during your time at like with, with like the, um, uh, the Lovin group in general and kind of almost like before, before you founded Far From Avocados, what was one book that kind of was your buddy throughout this journey? I, I, I find I, this is this is a question I found really, really difficult to um, answer. And I realized the reason I found it difficult to whittle it down to one, because I don't like to cheat in these things and pick two when, when one has been asked for. A lot, a lot of people have cheated before and, and selected two, but... <laughs> well, you see, I, I find fiction and nonfiction are so different that the only thing that they share in common really is the fact that they're presented as books. The fact that, you know, they're made of paper or we consume them on a Kindle or whatever the case may be. Um, they right. do, well, let's go with nonfiction then. Yeah, let's go with nonfiction. Nonfiction would be misbehaving, which is uh, by Richard Taylor, who most people know for Nudge. Um, you know the the he's the himself and um, oh my god, Daniel Kahneman are the uh, the the sort of the godfathers of behavioral economics, and that's this idea of think less about what people theoretically do or should do and think more about what they actually do and that's fundamental to how we approach so many things now without even without even kind of knowing about it nudge is the kind of the nudge was the behavioral economics bible for want of a better word that was the one that people took and they said like this is the you know this is a new way of thinking this is a that was the one that kind of made the popular impact misbehaving was the story of how that came to be and it was the story of how they were challenging classical economists um you know it was the distinctions they were drawing between what people should do and how people did actually act in reality it was all these things and i found that origin story probably taught me more about behavioral economics than nudge itself because of the because it really contextualized it against the challenges oh it, it, it really kind of define what it wasn't and why people were so upset that it wasn't this why the classical economists were saying no this is a this is a hunch this isn't a there's no academic rigor behind this and the battle they had to get up until the point really when they won the nobel prize for economics mm-hmm. and the parallels are kind of obvious here you know and, and, and we've spoken about it before this idea of pushing a boulder up a mountain of kind of you know, I had to do it with content marketing kind of six or seven years ago, really sort of, or like uh, editorial sponsored content back when I was in the Loving Group. And it's this unfamiliar concept to people. You know you're right. You know that all the, the underlying bits make sense, but they're kind of saying, no, I'm not familiar with this. I'm not comfortable with it. And there's a yeah. weird sense of isolation or frustration and sometimes deep self-questioning that comes from repeatedly having conversations like that day in, day out. And I took a lot from how Richard Taylor in particular navigated that and just kind of believed it. He, he was like, no, I, I fundamentally know that I'm looking at economic models and people are, data is telling me that people are not making decisions on these bases. They must be basing their decisions on something else and I want to understand what that something else is. And because he was always able to kind of come home to that 
central realization that he understood that it worked, even if, you know, he couldn't create yet the piece of paper that showed everyone that it did. Um, he kind of stayed true to it. So that's the, yeah. that's the nonfiction. Very quickly, I'll just jump into the, the fiction is um, much more quickly. It's a book called Such a Fun Age. It's by Kylie Reid. I read it in 2020 in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and everything that happened in the, um, in the aftermath of that because there was a kind of a consciousness around, um, you know, reading works by people of colour, reading, you know, uh, increasing the diversity of the backgrounds from, you know, which you're reading. And it's funny, I say that straight after talking about a book that is written by the prototypical, you know, old white man economist. Uh, but that was written from the perspective of a woman of colour. Um, so, you know, a woman... A person of a certain generation who went through a certain set of experiences in the course throughout the course of the book, and it truly was for all the real life things I could read about, for all the nonfiction books I could read about, um, you know, issues of race, issues of sexism, and you know, the patriarchy and everything else. Being put into that person's shoes for three hundred pages taught me so much more. And it mm. made me kind of feel it in a way that was very hard to kind of rationalize any other way. And I think that for me is why my reading is always, you know, 50-50 at least, but usually kind of 60-40 in favor of fiction. Because I think it can mm. transport us into places. You know, we all know that storytelling is a great way to impart. Yeah, um, I'm actually learning that recently, yeah. That, that like this notion of like, because I, I used to be anti-fiction. Uh, my, 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 my wife, she's very pro fiction. Uh, and over the last couple of years, like she's kind of won, won me over in terms of like getting me to read like more fiction be, and, and the, the point that I was too stubborn to see at the beginning is that when you read fiction, I, I used to think, oh, well, if I want to entertain myself, I'll just go watch a movie. That was, <laughs> that's how I was thinking of it. But what I, what I learned is that f sometimes you can get some really real life lessons, real life lessons from fiction in a way that maybe in a way that maybe nonfiction books can't necessarily illustrate in in the same you know manner or in the same effectiveness Fair enough. so and even if they are doing all the things right in terms of you know phrase you know positioning it as a story which even you know the nonfiction example i just gave was very much told as a story with the functional information kind of wrapped around it but even when that's done you know it was this person being fictional it was this person who could be created from scratch in the mind of someone who had a thing that they wanted to say that was able to deliver a message to me that no number of news reports or anything else would have been able to do and i would have gone down a path similar to yourself I, not necessarily anti-fiction but i would have kind of gone like i have a thing to do i have a job to do i need to be educating myself on that i need every waking moment you know so there's there's probably a bit of life learning that comes along with that anyway this idea that like not everything we do has to, should, or can revolve around the job that we do. We are not our jobs. And that, especially as founders, that's a really important thing to kind of remind ourselves. But, you know, even taking that sort of more intangible stuff away, I think the the value we can glean, it could also, if you're reading nonfiction alongside fiction, the fiction, the perspectives we get from the fiction can tie together the things we learn from the nonfiction. Oh, a hundred percent. And I mean, what to, to take, um, to, to take a step back, like, I think that's personally, like, that's what I've been learning to do with, with all the books that I read in general. I almost have like, I don't know if you have the same feeling, but like, I tend to create some type of like a mind map of 
you know, certain books and how they relate to one another and how, and how you can come up with something novel that is a combination of these four or five books that there's not technically a book about it, but it just kind of helps you, um, uh, yeah, it, ju it just kind of helps you like really cement ideas together because me and my co-founder, and I, I always pick on him on <laughs> in the show because he's, he's my brother as well, but we have like very different, um, yeah, very different kind of like reading preferences, as it were. He he's like the the Blinkist to X speed audiobook kind of guy. I'm I'm the guy who's will read a summary, okay, and then go and buy the book and read the entire book, just because not not because I'm you know what I mean. Uh, I'm I'm slow or I still don't understand it kind of thing. It's more because I also want to meditate on the subject. Like yes, I get it. I get it from the first page. I get it, but I just want to engross I think that's the word engross myself or just uh surround myself with the material so that I could really wrap my head around it oh absolutely and, like you know the yeah the, what you'll guess does Eamon won't in you know the in 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 diving into it in that level mm. can be crucial but also you know the, one of the reasons I'm a very big fan of Blinkist is because I've wasted time as well with books where I've kind of gone through, I've said, okay, meditating on this topic will actually help me. And I haven't really been given much then beyond the central kind of the, you know, whatever theory or whatever buzz term or whatever the author of this has kind of created to sure. build the whole thing around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm halfway through and I'm like, okay, you're just telling me a series of stories that, yes, one or two anecdotes to bring this concept to life, very helpful, but 12 chapters worth, maybe not so much. So Blinkist is going to be useful triage and there have been ones. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. I want to understand this on a really like. I want to meditate is a perfect word, actually. Like, I want to just yeah. immerse myself totally. Yeah, I want to. I want to be with this material. I want to sit. I want it to sit with me for a while. I, I I got it already, like you know, two weeks ago. But I just want to. I just want to chew on it a bit, kind of thing. Absolutely, um, and that's a, that's a great. And for us. So I use like Blinkus as my triage, and then I kind of jump off from there. I also don't read. Um, non-fiction when I'm going to bed because I feel it that's a good idea the brain. <laughs> I heard you know yeah, so yeah. I just I, what I'll find myself doing then is I'll get up to like write down some notes and then I'll say like I might as well research this and I kind of get you know whereas if I'm in fiction it's just like okay just gonna read this gonna take this in as a story uh, for, you know for entertainment for reflection whatever it is um I think yeah like you said using the two of them to interplay off one another whether that's in a considered way or a totally random, you know, laying it all out and letting the coincidences happen. Uh, big fan of that. Man, I mean, I've I've been reading a book that I, a genre of books that I don't normally read, which is uh, uh, biographies. Well, I, I do read biographies from time to time, but I've never read like kind of like a political biography before. And I've been reading for the last, because I'm such a slow reader. I've For the last three months, I'm barely halfway through Nelson Mandela's um, autobiography. I think it's called The... Uh, long walk to freedom or the long road to freedom um i'm i'm like barely halfway through and only now did he uh go, go to prison in this in the, the part I'm, I'm in so and it, it's just crazy because um something that i thought oh this is like i don't want to say escapism because i don't think that's appropriate to say but like i just wanted to rem read something and educate myself about something that's far removed from my day-to-day -day. and weirdly enough aiden i actually started to to see a lot of I started to learn a lot of things, a lot of things that I felt, even though this is not fiction, obviously it's very non-fiction. Um, th there's a lot of things that I've learned, like just through like the anecdotes that, that he talks about, the, the stories, the, 
the scenarios, the circumstances, there's a lot of things that kind of make you think about like present day life as well in certain regards and in a way that's maybe more nuanced than a, you know what I mean? Like a business book saying, Hey, here's my, here, here's like the bullet point list that you need or whatever. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it, it, it's definitely been, uh, it's definitely been eye opening for me, but I, I am conscious of time though. So I do want to move on to the next point. Cause I know you're gonna, I know you have a lot to say about the next ones. What, who was one person for you? Now this one I found, you know, remarkably difficult. I decided to kind of, it usually is. I decided to take my parents as a given, right? Because I've, you know, grown up with them. I've kind of, and if they're listening to this, I apologize. I don't mean that I take you for granted. I mean that I kind of, you know, it's it's very, you know, eight times out of 10, maybe it's going to be parents because we are raised by them. We are formed in their image a lot of the time, you know, depending on, on our background. Sure. Parent, parents always get, uh, they're always counted. So, yeah. Yeah, and look, what you know, one of our one of our mantras as well when it comes to content creation, whether it's for self, whether it's for others, is like, you know, what's the first answer that comes to your head? It probably shouldn't be that one. Um, so the answer objectively probably is them, but the person and you know, there's the person who just like knocks my socks off really is my partner. Um, Paula is her name. She works in marketing as well. She's a product marketing manager, but first of all, she's a great example. Or, you know, I, I think the term marketing is an enormous term that applies to several different disciplines. And, you know, I think I'm very, very good at it. I'm quite accomplished in it. And then I look at her and she is performing a role. She's performing a, a, a function and, you know, a role within her company that I'm just sort of blown away by. I, I, I just don't understand how she is able to do these things. I don't understand how she's able to think with the level of clarity she has. I think I don't understand how she's able to, um, you know, see all the different moving parts at once. It's kind of like when you're watching a, a chess grandmaster or a, a brilliant snooker player and you're kind of seeing them mm. see the board. And I, I, I think that's absolutely phenomenal. And I, I love... Well, what, what are some things that she, uh, she taught you, perhaps? Um, when we do collaborate on the topic of work um and it's usually it, it would usually be my work um just because i'm a founder and i kind of don't have the same number of people to to bounce off or whatever mm -hmm. i think what we said earlier about decisions about clarity about you know and, and we can be having these conversations and i can sort of be instinctively pushing back because i feel that these decisions are they're they're limiting future possibilities and what I kind of realized then is what you're doing is you're you're taking a, a river or a stream that's been split in multiple different directions and you're blocking them off and you're letting the water flow down one way. And I'm just, you know, and this is all through a kind of a, a lens of genuine, you know, kindness and empathy and insane intellect. And I just, it's one of those people where you just kind of look at them and go, whoa, like how, how does that brain even exist? Um, that's just look. I'm, I'm I'm speaking primarily from a work perspective. Like all these things are true across the board as well. It's just a person who you know who has all these kind of qualities that, and as someone with ADHD, you know who was diagnosed quite late in life. This realization over the last couple of years that you know brains don't work in a uniform manner. They work in many many different forms and. Some of those forms have names and, you know, uh, 
labels and medical terms and some don't and some probably should and possibly I don't know it's not for me to say maybe even some shouldn't um yeah. that's not to say I'm not actually saying that but like you know it's 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 a remarkably complex landscape and you know I don't want to do the the classic thing of oh you know in school we're all treated like numbers or whatever I don't think that's true for a moment or certainly not in my experience I was lucky enough that it wasn't but we are certainly in a world where up until recently that acknowledgement of the workings and the methodologies and you know of different brains the wiring of different brains haven't really been talked about that much and it very much has been there's been a certain type of mind that's been other people have kind of been expected to work to that and Oh, yeah, absolutely. To a certain extent, that needs to happen. We need to collaborate. We need to kind of find that sort of meeting space. And what I find amazing... Yeah. And, and, and not to go on a total tangent, uh, just yeah. before we go back, like, not, I think what I, what I find interesting is how school systems, right? Like, they tend to be very... Like, it's it's the antithesis of that. But yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, it, it, it really is. You know, and look, I, I was lucky enough, I got on quite well in school because for all my kind of lack of focus and my wandering mind and everything I was generally quite well behaved and, and and things like that and I just I was I was happy in school I liked my teachers I you know they they were on an individual basis good I think I was one of these people who benefited from individuals in a system that you know I, I got lucky basically in a system that otherwise may not have suited me um, and I'm really really grateful for that actually but I think during this journey of kind of understanding that brains work in radically different ways you for the first time in your life appreciate the ones that don't work the exact same as you do as yours do and that can do things that yours can't and that creates a whole new perspective on i i, I love that by the way and i think now that you explain it like i feel i feel like i'm st i've started to notice it a lot as well um just before i forget because by the way you you are literally describing me like that that is literally me as well like i I'm 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 very uh, all the things you said like I can very much resonate with um, in terms of like yeah just this idea of like scatter focus in general uh, but I think there's one book that you might have come across slash might like it's called uh, Surrounded by Idiots and uh, it's actually uh, written by the guy who created the uh, the disc profiling t um, the disc profiling assessment which you may have come across before the ISC. And he basically talks about how there's four different personality types and how sometimes we walk around in the world thinking, you know, oh, if, I, if only everyone can get me, if everyone, and crucially, if only everyone was like me, if I'm an impatient person, which I am, I, I tend to perceive everyone as slow. Why is everyone so slow? Why don't you just do it? If I were me, I would have done it faster. Um, someone like my co-founder again, Emin, uh, he's very analytical and he's like, why, why do people do things haphazardly? Why aren't people accurate? If only everyone was accurate, right? Um, there are others who are, yeah, I, you know, not to go through all the not not to go through all the four types, but I think the book surrounded by idiots talks about. I love the title because it's attention grabbing, but it's a very it's a very empathetic book because it teaches you about the four types. You very quickly figure out which one you are, and you get this ability to be able to not judge, but like very quickly, literally in the space of five minutes, assess. Um, so it's four colors, what color the other person is. And based on that, he tells you sort of like the, the pros and cons, the pros and cons or the strengths and weaknesses of every color. Yeah. For example, uh, I, I'm, I'm considered a, um, uh, a red, which basically means, uh, impatient, likes to get things done quickly and so on. 
getting things done quickly is a positive, but one of the things that's not a positive is that sometimes I might say things that could, um, you know, be misinterpreted, interpreted by the other person, or sometimes I rush things. And as a result, the details aren't, you know, taken, taken care of, so on and so forth. Yep. So it, it definitely taught me a lot about how, to your point, Aiden, like the, there's a lot of different, and, and I think personality and brain can, can be, can be put in the same room. There's a lot of different personality types out there and, and a lot of different ways for you to really determine, or there's a lot of different ways that be, that you can get something done and the degree to which you can understand all these things and appreciate it, as you were saying, uh, I think you, you only stand to win and, and the other person as well. That's, uh, that, that's, that's actually put so well, Alec, and I think, you know, the, the title, it resonates, it's attention grabbing, obviously, but it really does, for, for anyone in one of those, you know, you're looking at other people and you're kind of going like, why are you, you know, why are you kind of slow? And I, I, I'd, I'd be very much the same, that kind of urgency, that kind of, you know, that urgency yeah, yeah. that can also very, very quickly in an instant be dropped when I find something else shiny, you know, and, and it's, you know, then Eamon would be looking at you saying like, that was a really rash thing to do because he's looking at it from an analytical point of view. So you are both kind of thinking, Always, yeah. without that understanding, you know, it was very lonely. It was very lonely, actually, being this kind of, you know, thinking in a certain way and kind of thinking like, why can't, and it's a really, like, it comes across narcissistic now almost, like, why can't others be more like me? I don't think it was that. I think it was more sort of, I just didn't understand that brains kind of worked in different ways or that mind sure, yeah, yeah. in a way that was that exists like, yeah. Yeah, to the extent where it's considered atypical, you know? And some people, I think understand that sort of in an instinctive way and some people need to be kind of taught and some people need to you know i'm much happier for knowing it now and i'm very very happy to be you know spending so much of my time around someone whose brain works in a radically different way but also completely yeah. understands the way mine works and is you know love that like obviously accommodating and all that sort of thing but also just you know a real sort of jigsaw pieces fitting together sort of thing you know the strengths and weaknesses complementing one another and stuff like that and I just yeah. think the joy of finding that symbiotic click is oh there's nothing like really it like I know exactly where, and I have it I have yeah. it with friends I have it with uh you know my family I have it with many other people as well but and and there's also a great joy as well in finding someone who is a sort of a, a mirror image like a sort of a, a copy you know I think that's why we've often enjoyed having conversations so much in the past because it's like oh my god you get that and there's the joy in that but really yeah likewise yeah, yeah. it's this kind of no. this perspective that i get um and this challenging but also in a really really safe way that i get from uh being around paula that i just think she's a person who very much shapes my day-to-day in a fantastically positive way um yeah so taking aside my parents as a formality mm-hmm. it's, it's it's her for 100 percent Love that. What was one decision for you, perhaps closer to modern day time that, and I have a feeling, because obviously we've been speaking before, I have a feeling I know what you're going to say, but what was kind of one decision that, ha- that that took place recently for you that really changed the trajectory of everything else? I want to know what you think I'm going to say. Are you sure? <laughs> okay, Go on. cool. Go on. <laughs> I, I think, I, I think it's, you've experienced a lot of success with Far From Avocados over over several years. I never told you this in person, but I think now's a good time as any. 
when I first heard about you guys, I think you, you came and gave a, a workshop to our cohort uh, back when we were based in Huckletree. I had, no, I had definitely known about Far From Avocados from, uh, from before that. And I was like, damn it, these guys are so good. And I think like once, once you came and talked to us, I was like, I, I really like these guys. And I, I really like like what they stand for and, and they continue to be really good. And I just, I've always associated, um, FFA with like doing it right, successful, um, you know, that really, yeah, th think things on the outside, it seems like things are going really well for you. And I know that was the case, but I think the decision that you've made recently of just revamping the the company uh look uh changing the the activities of the company i know you've you've been through you've been through some things recently which you may want to tell us about but i think it just made you take inventory of like everything you've achieved and it made you realize that you know what um the the, the, the way that things were moving before is not necessary the things the way that things were working before isn't necessarily the way that I'm confined to and there are different ways for me to define success there's different iterations of this and chief among them is how you've like really in, I think in, in my terms I would say you've kind of like pivoted or evolved the direction and size of FFA and I think this kind of put th a lot of things into perspective I know you've had like a digital products business separate to that but I, th I think the modifications you've done with FFA, I think that was kind of like the big decision for you, in my opinion. Hundred percent. You're you're absolutely correct. That is the decision. It's the decision to effectively walk away from a successful agency business, um, because yeah. So uh, you know, one morning um, in summer of last year, so 2022, I got out of bed and I immediately collapsed to the floor and started having a seizure. Um, it was scary to say the least. I ended up spending four days in hospital. You know, I, I went into hospital against my better judgment. I thought like I'd gotten up, I had like maybe like I got up too quickly and then I fell to the floor. And only for the fact that Paula had been there and seen it all take place. She told me, no, when you were out, you were having a full seizure. And it's remarkable to think back in it now, but at the time I was actually like, no, 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 I don't need to go get that checked out, um, which is just insane. But eventually I kind of, I acceded to the request and went into hospital. I kind of thought like they'd check me out and say, all right, well, let us know if it happens again. Nope, I was in for um, five days, I think. Uh, went through every scan imaginable and all this sort of thing. And eventually what came back was, it was a form of, epilepsy and I may be sort of paraphrasing now but temporal lobe epilepsy but the understanding I got from the neurologist anyway at the time and certainly what she was keen to impart to me was this is the result of prolonged stress so the stress and let, let me ask you something because I because I know how much you love FFA honestly did you feel stressed before or were you like I'm just I'm doing what I love what are you talking about so you touch on something really interesting there which is when you love doing something you're you're not a yeah. so if you consider right our our body has pain receptors so if we're walking along the street and then we step on a nail we'll feel that quickly enough to go oh, and to jump off it before the nail goes all the way to our foot but imagine for whatever reason i just realized this analogy might be going slightly off the tracks but imagine for for whatever reason this nail is coated in a, a substance that actually makes it feel really nice or that makes it feel, you know, oh, so or like a if, we're just, if we're just numbed, 
we could step yeah. on that nail and it could go right through our foot and we are none the wiser. The damage done is not lessened by the fact that we haven't felt the pain. And mm, uh, You'll just find out about it later, maybe. Or exactly, exactly. Or more down with the nail uh, sticking through our foot, you know? And I think that's what happened that day. Like, uh, you know, I had made a lot of moves over the last couple of years to, you know, reduce my role in the business. Um, as you mentioned, I kind of set up a digital product spreadsheet templates business during the pandemic. Um, and that was going very well. So with that, you know, I kind of funded an expansion of the business, brought in a managing director. That worked fantastically well. The agency, you know, grew in a way that I was really happy with and I was able to take a step back. But then at a certain point, that growth got to a point where I was needed to get back in the game a little bit. And mm -hmm. the summer before that, I was so, like, I was relaxed in a way that I've never been in my life. I was spending my time in creative pursuits i was making music i was writing music i was producing stuff i was you know i set up a, a tiktok account dedicated to posting below deck clips from the bravo tv show and got like hundreds thousand followers just because why not <laughs> and i was actually pursuing things for the fun and actually to go back to yeah. our point about the books you can learn so much just by doing that but that's a separate thing oh, yeah. and i was really really relaxed and i was like okay all the stress the the, the stuff that like I come really, really close to feeling like I was on the edge so many times in the time before then. And I was like, okay, I've unwound. I've, I've stepped away from that. So I really felt ready to go back when I did. And what happened then was as soon as I was back for a short amount of time, undergoing not particularly a stressful set of circumstances, but not one that would make you or me go, oh my God, that's a high stress existence, but just day-to-day -day kind of levels of stress. As soon as that little bit ticked in, it was like, all the stuff that was there in the background kind of came and it all kind of, you know, presented itself in this moment. And I kind of realized... Well, let me let me ask you something on that because I think, I imagine like people who are listening right now are are saying, hey, well, I imagine they're listening to us and they're thinking, hey, well, I would love to live a stress-free life, but I need to do sales. I need to grow my company. Um, you know, they're, they're usually entrepreneurs and, and, and CEOs. You know, this is what they need to do to continue to continue growing how what what did this uh crazy experience that you've been through like what did that teach you or how did you kind of like what would you say to folks tuning in about that about that balance you know like i mean i, I have the same demands upon myself because as... sorry just one one final thing one final thing as well is because you mentioned something which i thought was really a little bit scary which is you did not particularly feel any, you know, anything out of the norm as far as like stress levels. You're like, yeah, it's just, just another day. And I, I think that's, that's the part that scared me because it's like, it's not like, you know, you saw it coming kind of thing. Uh, you were just going about your day. And I think a lot of people are just going about their days. And But a, a very important context for that is that I'd already gone through, like the acutely stressful period had happened two years prior. And that was like, deep, deep levels of stress and it required me kind of taking a break and I, you know, uh, went down to, you know, I was I was in with doctors and all that sort of thing. Like, you know, it, it, it was it was quite, you know, quite full on. Um, and that was what gave me the impetus to kind of take the step back from the business. And then when I stepped back a little bit, basically this stress in itself, had it just been on its own, would have been nothing. It would have been the, the manageable amount. And I like even objectively looking back at that now, it was actually a manageable level of stress. 
but combined with what was kind of there, what I'd kind of already done. And and from my understanding, the neurological shifts that had already happened, I think kind of the, I, I suppose a little like a good way to use it. And I'm, I'm, I'm wary of using mental health analogies that relate to physical health because sometimes they oversimplify things. But look, if, if we've rolled on our ankle two years ago and we go for a run today, even if the rehabilitation process was as good as it could be, it's not going to take as much for us to roll on our ankle today and, and, and cause a relapse of that injury. You know, even if what we did, if, if we did on any other day would have just been a little bit of a, you know, oh, yeah, there was a bit of a twist, you know, I'll take care of that. If we have that pre-existing injury, it can, it can be a lot worse. And to continue that analogy, like I think one of the decisions I made was to scale things down to something that was just me so that I would have that agency. I would have that independence because I'm a big believer in working with the flow, working with my brain as opposed to against it. And that's a decision I've made. It's not for everyone. Not everyone would do it. But I think as well, you know, there, there, are, certain, there are certain people in sports who are very, very promising and they break through and they're doing incredible stuff at the age of 22, 23. And then they start getting injured. And then they get injured a lot. And then it comes to the end of their career. And we kind of say like, wow, would have been a great player if not for all those injuries. Yep. And then we look at the players who are phenomenal. We look at the Ronaldos and the Messis and we kind of see that their careers have not been blighted by injury. Some of that is conditioning. Some of that is how they look after themselves. Some of that is just genetic makeup. They're, you know, they're lucky to not have, you know, what would be called in football, the glass ankle. And I kind of think part of it is just in terms of personality, in terms of who I am, in terms of what I've, the things I've learned, in terms of the things that matter to me. And, you know, I have to mention as well, I have a six-year-old son who, you know, I'm very conscious of, like when I'm lying in a hotel, uh, hotel bed, um, hospital bed, thinking, am I in serious trouble here? Like, is something seriously wrong with my brain? Am I going to be okay? You get that sort of jolt of perspective and all, all these things. Yeah. And that all just amounted to a decision where I, you know, a point where I okay. make a decision and say, I don't want that level of stress and I don't want that type of stress. It's a different type of stress when you're self-dependent, when you're not worried about paying other people's wages, when you're not pay worried about making sure that people have the direction they need and the kind of the, and all the things that you need to do to run that larger organization. Yeah. I don't know if I'll go back to that. At some point in the future, I believe I will be able to, I'll be ready to. I don't think that this is a sort of a permanent thing uh, by any stretch. But for now, I want to just manage myself. And... Yeah. Through a combination of all those factors, I made the decision that I was going to do that. And the reason I picked that as a decision is not because it's the most pivotal one, pivotal one, but because it's the one that feels most like a decision. It was the one that I actually sat down and said, <laughs> you know, again, with the with the clarity of thinking. with the, with. It was a very clear decision. Yeah. Clear cut decision. I, yeah. I, and it's funny because I, I think. This is it because I, I don't think I ever decided to found avocados. I started consulting and then that became a brand. I don't, I never decided to start the digital products business. I started put one up on the website and it started selling and I started to add more. This one was a decision. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the word, the, the, or I think the Latin origin of the word decide, you may have heard this one before. Uh, I think it's decidere or decidere, which basically means to cut. So it's like, what, what are you cutting? What, what are you cutting? And, and, and what are you sticking with kind of thing? 
Uh, oh right, okay. We, we, we're going to talk about are related. Yeah, that doesn't. Yeah, it's like a dis I have decided. I have I have cut. Yeah. There's no more. I have cut already. You kind of thing. Uh, so I, I know you've you started talking into learnings. I think it's a really nice kind of mm -hmm. entry point into the final key moment around. Uh, normally, I like to ask around uh, like and the call, uh, learnings. I feel like you've been giving sharing a lot of learnings so far. So I want to take this in a slightly different direction. What was one thing that you've accomplished that wasn't like the shiniest thing on the outside, but for you, it just sort of like hit different? You know, the fact that I don't have an answer ready for this or like, you know, not just in terms of prepping for today, but in terms of just in general, probably shows that I haven't always been great at reflecting on the the, the good moments as they've come along. Um, there have been moments along the way. I think they, they've been... They've been the little moments. They have been the moments where I kind of realized that, you know, a client who originally took us on just to create some content for us was bringing me into the fold or bringing us into the fold as strategic advisors, that we kind of made that shift, that the talking we'd done had, you know, persuaded them that we knew, we kind of understood this ecosystem. We knew that, like, in order to get this to work, Yes, the piece of content is fine, but we need to build all these bits around it. We need to put it in the right context. We need it to do the thing that it needs to do for your business. And getting involved in those conversations kind of for the first time, maybe two, three years into the agency, that felt like a big thing. Um, that did feel like a big thing. And that's maybe the, you know, the feeling that we got from that is probably what's led me into the consultative direction of taking things in now. Um, there's also... You know, you kind of said not the shiny things and, and like, I think you're, that's a really good limiter to put on the question because it's so easy to just kind of drift towards, oh yeah, when we got such and such an award, whatever, but it's. Because cause I feel, and, and the, re the reason for that is because sometimes I feel like what you value internally or what you personally value is not necessarily aligned with, you know what I mean? Like what your LinkedIn community would, would, would value or what your, you know, yeah, network in general would 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 point you and say, you know what? When I think of Aiden, I think of that one time he got that one award, or when his agency got this one award, what have you? That's kind of what I'm going with it. No, and I think I think to that end, I think it is that. Like, I think it's the fact that when we did say we were going to, you know, when we let our clients know that we were pivoting away from the agency model and that we were going to, you know, kind of wrap up uh, the work that we were doing at the time, all that sort of thing, that they were kind of like, oh. Oh right, okay. That's 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 a shame. You know, nobody gave them. They were they weren't. Oh, in the sense of you've left us high and dry here. We we made sure to look after them and help them hand over and all that sort of thing. But they were disappointed for us to go, and they kind of realized that we weren't. I realized from their reaction, and they said it that we weren't directly replaceable. We brought something to the table that was unique to us, and I think that. Yeah, I love that. That in itself, now it made the decision all the more difficult. It was a difficult decision anyway, but that in itself, I think, was one of the moments where I was like, wow. It may not have been the thing that ultimately I wanted to do. And look, a lot of this as well is down to the fact that I realized that AI was kind of coming for the services that we were offering a lot quicker than maybe some of the more, you know, highly cognitive areas. And there was a kind of a, it wasn't just like, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm going to, I'm going to call it. There was a strategic kind of level behind it as well. But I did realize that we'd built something, we'd built relationships, we'd built trust, we'd built credibility that really meant something to people. And... and that was that was quite something. Yeah, I love that. It reminds me of uh, 
something Seth Godin says, he who was actually on the show uh, recently, he says this, he has this thing where he says, um, will, will people miss you when you're gone? You know, and I think it's it's synonymous with, if I'm not mis, uh, misquoting, but it's synonymous with his work in a book he wrote called Lynchpin. Oh yeah. Which is like, well, you know, you're, you're adding value, but the, the true the true measure of it is like, will you be missed if you're gone, if you're no longer doing this? And it seems like um, you, you are a linchpin in terms of like for, for, for that example that you shared, which, which I absolutely love. Um, Aiden, as you can see, like we've, we've crossed the hour mark. I can easily do oh two more hours with you. I'm, I'm just wondering in closing, is there anything that you wanted to share with people out there um, about people tuning in about obviously where they can find you, but also is, is there anything that you wanted to share parting thoughts or anything you wanted to, to give them? Yeah, look, I think it, it, it comes down to something that we've touched on repeatedly throughout this episode, and that is this is a the industry that we are in collectively um, and I don't just mean marketers, I mean people in the tech world I mean people in the people in the business of trying to influence the decision of others mm. are we're, we're in a funny position at the moment because there's a technology coming along that will supplant a lot of the functional elements of what we do. It's not there yet and organizations aren't ready to embrace it yet, but it is happening. Um, and with that, I think there's, it's something that you and I discussed actually um, on, a, on a separate call last week, this idea that in a world where content so much content is going to be increasingly commodified and finding the point of difference finding the way to stand out because everybody has access to these same tools yes some people are going to use them better than others yes some people are going to be able to transfer their ability to tell stories or ability to write questions in a very very positive way but there is going to be an advantage for people who are able to chart a path to make content gain and retain attention um, because just producing it and to use the example we used uh, you know last week like a couple of weeks ago or a couple of years ago producing a video or producing an ebook in itself was enough if you had enough to say and fill an ebook you probably had authority on a subject and obviously with the right. widespread access of um, you know of AI tools and so on that's just not the case anymore so what's your way of not just creating the authoritative material and bringing yourself into it. What's your framework for doing that? But also, mm. how are you convincing people? How are you showing people that this isn't just another one of these kind of things that are spun up? What is the difference? What is the human factor in that content that are going to elevate things? And how can you produce as efficiently as possible um, in order to deliver that? That's something that I've just been obsessing over really recently. And so if there is anyone in the creative content marketing industry, creative content or marketing industries, um, that would like a conversation about that, please feel free to um, pop onto farfromavocados.com and drop us a line. Um, I'll be more than happy to have a chat. Awesome. Well, Aiden, it was a pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for sharing Thank all your you stories. Fantastic and, conversation uh, as we always have and it's going to have my, my mind racing for the rest of the day. <laughs> I, I don't doubt that the same will happen to me. Uh, but yeah, we, we might come back and do a part two, so consider yourself warned. <laughs> oh, excellent. But uh, yeah, thanks for coming on and uh, we'll see you soon. Thanks, Doreen. Talk to you. Bye.